Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Welcome to On Boys, real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. We're your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net and Janet Allison of boysalive.com. Black boys fare worse than white boys in 99% of America. Let that sink in for a minute. Black boys fare worse than white boys in 99% of America. And this is something we have to talk about. You've heard us talk often about some of the systemic problems that boys face in the educational system and in the community. The assumption by so many that boys are bad, boys are trouble, that is all amplified. For black boys. With us today to help us dig into what's going on and to point our way towards things that we can all do to improve the situation for boys is Hillary Beard. Hillary Beard is an author that worked on the book Promises Kept, Raising Black Boys to Succeed in School and in Life. And that book came out in 2015 as a companion to the documentary that many of you may have seen, American Promise. If you have not seen it, I recommend you watch it as soon as possible. We will include the link below. And Hillary has also written some books with and about some amazing people. She's written books about Venus and Serena Williams. She's written about Monet Davis. She just recently helped hidden figure Katherine Johnson write her autobiography, and she was one of the the figures in the movie Hidden Figure. Hillary, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here to have this conversation. You also are working directly with parents. You have an online course that I believe you said will be running again in the fall, Rise and Thrive, How to Raise Black Children Who Thrive During These Treacherous Times. Earlier this year, really late last year and earlier this year, I, as I, like many of us, uh, I was becoming increasingly disturbed by the changing climate in this country around uh, difference. And I began watching people who I thought were behaving in heroic ways or who were rising to the occasion. And as I was admiring them, I started to ask myself what I might contribute to the conversation. 
And I realized that even though sometimes I look to other people for expertise, that I myself was sitting atop a treasure trove of information, both information that made it into the book Promises Kept, but also, as you know, any writer or researcher does way more information (laughs) than makes it into whatever it is they write. It's like a film. So much film ends up on the cutting room floor. And so I realized that I possessed all sorts of information. And as I was in the community or talking to my siblings or talking to friends or even sitting sitting after church, listening to uh, mostly people of color, in this particular case, uh, parents of African-American children, whether or not the parents are black or not. But I was listening to uh, parents really struggle with you know, we thought we were raising the Obama generation, a generation of young people who would be uh, live in a world that was very diverse and there, w- there would be a lot of racial harmony and uh, a greater level of equity and children who would finally be able to walk through the doors of opportunity and assume their rightful uh, seat at a table that should be somewhat level. You know, mm-hmm. we've been telling our children that they too could be the FLOTUS or POTUS, right? Right. And, um, now, all of a sudden, um, you know, under the Trump administration, we're having the clock rolled back. There are judges being put in place that are rolling back the clock on environmental rights, on abortion rights, on LGBTQ, uh, voting rights, affirmative action, all sorts of things that will affect generation of young people, no matter their race. Right. Um, but I just happened to be sitting atop information that would be really helpful for uh, African-American children. And so what I decided to do was uh, take that information and package it into an online course that would equip parents with research-based skills from the who's who of child development experts that would um, give them a portfolio of skills, of strategies, of conceptual frameworks that they could use, that they could filter through their family value system, wherever it is that they live in the country, whatever type of school their child is in, whatever developmental stages their children are in. So give them frameworks that they could then filter their own family situation, child situation through and make the best decisions so that they could raise children who thrive, bring their gifts to the world and are poised to not only survive the rise of racism and bigotry and, and, and violence, but also to thrive amidst it and because of it, because they are prepared to live in this type of world and they have a message of leadership for themselves and also other people. Because all parents, all of us, we want our children to thrive. And I love what you said there as well about filtering it down through your own family, your own experience, your own community. One of the things that's very difficult about parenting advice and helping parents is that we all have our own unique situations, which must certainly be taken into consideration. At the same time, as you said, there's really solid research out there that says what our children need to thrive. Yes. This conversation, I think, is really powerful because especially for those of us who are parents of children of color and or parents of other children with marginalized identities, whether they're LGBTQ or children with with disabilities or that kind of thing, um, there tend to be fewer outlets 
who can help get that information to us. Uh, general market information is wonderful, but it's not always the best information for us. And we're now at a point in time where there is very specific information, very specific strategies for different populations, what works, what's best, and so on. Let's talk about what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. What is the current state of affairs? What is the current reality that is facing our black and brown boys? What are they dealing with in school? What do the statistics tell us and what do you hear from other families? What has been your experience? You know, we've been conditioned in this country with a narrative that society is fair, right? And so that is being exposed right now, the lack of fairness and the way that the deck is stacked against so many different people um, of various identities. Um, But there's this narrative in this country, particularly since we've now had a black president and first lady and first family in the White House, that society is fair across race. And so for many white people, although not, not, not necessarily all, but for many white people, Uh, it's easier to believe that our society is fair than to understand how unfair it is. And just just to give you a sense, there's this narrative about the black middle class, how well black people are doing. Well, the fact of the matter is that there's a 19 to 1 wealth gap. So black people's wealth is is basically 120th of that of white people's wealth. So while some of us may, uh, uh, many of us may share a middle-class income or some people are affluent, wealth, which is what you own minus what you owe, mm-hmm. and it's, it's developed cumulatively over generations, often driven by the value of housing or things that are passed down from generation to generation. Uh, You know, there is no equality. Um, For instance, we talk about, we're going to talk about uh, boys right now and across race. uh, And we have this conversation about a racial achievement gap, which is really a racial opportunity gap. And some of that opportunity is being driven by who's being pushed out of the classroom and who's not. Well, at the current rate, it will take 286 years to close the racial achievement gap. It's unacceptable. We can't wait that long. Right. No, no white parents would sit there and allow that for their child without fighting, right? And so it's not acceptable for any child. So um, this is what we're facing. This is what black children are facing and black for black boys. The situation is far worse because we have gendered racism and there is fear in this country of African-American males uh, that far exceeds that of African-American girls, um, although many black girls are struggling as well. And this filters down to the youngest. So there are statistics that show that boys are suspended from school at far greater rates than girls are, that boys are more likely to be expelled. They're more likely to um, be labeled, land in special ed, more likely to drop out. Everything we say about boys is magnified even more for African-American boys. And I know the first time I saw it, I was shocked that in preschool, in preschool, the, Af- the rates of suspension and expulsion for African-American boys, and we are talking about three and four-year-olds, is extraordinarily high and ultimately completely disproportionate to the population. 
of African-American boys in a particular classroom. Right. So in the society, we uh, look at how African-American males are doing, and there's this kind of overarching conversation that's very active in the public right now about mass incarceration. Uh, as a nation, we're starting to make some progress toward uh, reducing mass incarceration. And so that actually, much of it is driven by what's called the school to prison or classroom to prison pipeline. And it, uh, and so, and, and, and racial opportunity gaps or racial achievement gaps. Um, and so when I talk about school to prison pipeline, I'm talking about referrals to the principal's office, out of school suspension, expulsion, referrals to law enforcement and law enforcement and in school arrests um, that push children and disproportionately black children, as I'll tell you, and disproportionately disproportionately black males out of the classroom and into the criminal justice system. And so it starts in preschool, as we're going to discuss in a moment, and it continues all throughout children's career. And so it impacts African-American children, um, but even more than African-American children, interestingly, it impacts Native American children, African-American children, Latinos, LGBTQ children of all races, and children with disabilities, particularly those with learning and emotional disabilities. And so... The school-to-prison pipeline is an issue for all of these cohorts, but the issue is greatest with African-American children. And so I like that we're going to be able to talk about it because if we can address this for African-American children, then we can scoop everybody up and solve the problem for everybody. And so the disproportionality uh, for African-American students uh, in school overall is the suspension and expulsion rate for African-American girls is 6 to 11 times that of white girls. And the suspension and expulsion rate for black boys is three to four times that of uh, white boys, with uh, males accounting for two-thirds of suspensions. And I'll complicate this, so there is an intersectional overlay to this. Okay. So depending upon what year of school we're talking about, between two-thirds and 85% of the teachers of black children are white women. And so when we peel back all the layers, who's pushing all of these different children, and particularly black children and black boys out of the classroom, is white women. So it does begin in preschool, and uh, research out of Yale shows that black children are twice as likely to get kicked out of preschool as white children, uh, uh, um, and 90% of those are boys. That same research out of the Yale University, uh, I think it's the Yale Child Studies Center, showed that when they use this high-tech uh, equipment to track the eye movements of teachers, mm -hmm. when trouble or when challenges are expected in the classroom, 42% of the time, teachers' eyes are tracking black boys. 34% of the time, they're tracking white boys. Uh, I think it's 13% of the time they're tracking white girls. And surprisingly, the lowest group of in this particular study that was tracked was black girls. And so there's also a U.S. Uh, Accountability Office study that shows that in preschool, black children are 2.5 times more likely to get uh, suspended from school. And so what the research is also showing is that the children are exhibiting developmentally appropriate behavior. And so the narrative is... The societal narrative is that black children are bad, and it starts when they're young and it continues through school. That's not what the research shows at all. The research shows that the behavior is similar and is developmentally appropriate. 
developmentally appropriate behavior. This is so important because what you are saying and what is happening is we have children who are behaving like Like children children. and are being pushed out of our classrooms. And I don't want to, and I don't think you are either, I'm not going to attribute any uh, meanness or harmful intent to most teachers. So much of this, it's unconscious. We have all been bathed and marinated in this system and that, that study you mentioned that tracked the eye movements is fascinating because yes. all of us as human beings, we have these systems in our brain so that we can make quick decisions and react quickly. It's, it's designed to keep us safe. You know, if there's a threat, we don't really have a whole lot of time to sit and logically puzzle it through. So our brain makes all these assumptions. Who do we think is trouble based on? everything we've been told, everything that we've been taught, everything we've heard, everything we've seen. And our judgments are not necessarily accurate, but they have very real world consequences for children, for communities, for our future. Right. And uh, so the research shows that adults move black, remove black children from schools, uh, from classrooms more than any other children. So black children miss more days of school as a result of adults who remove them from school. And it begins as we're seeing in preschool and it continues throughout their school career. And so there are researchers who believe that the racial achievement gap and the racial discipline gap are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And to the point that you're making about implicit bias, that same Yale University study showed that Black women were all black women uh, preschool teachers were also more likely to discipline black children as well, for different reasons perhaps, but we're all bathed in the same toxic soup of a society that's structured a certain way, and I believe intentionally a lack of education to help us understand why it's structured that way. Mm-hmm. Um, we're bathed in the same media environment. Uh, You and I are in the media, and so the research in the media is very clear that the media manipulates the uh, images of black people to create fear. If we can create fear, then we can command your attention because the neuroscience tells us that your brain will override the dinner that you're cooking to watch the evening news, that lead story on the evening news, right? All the time. Right, exactly. So black children continue to be excessively disciplined in elementary school and in middle school and high school. Um, And it's for discretionary infractions. And uh, adults have decided uh, and increasingly will be criminalized. So as we are, you know, talking about boys' experience in school and African-American boys being expelled and suspended from preschool, This affects their time in school. It most certainly affects how they feel about school, how welcome they feel at school. Um, And as these kids get older, oftentimes school discipline actually turns into interactions with law enforcement and legal sanctions. Can you explain that piece of it a little bit? Yeah, so increasingly schools, uh, many schools have zero tolerance policies. The policies were developed originally, I think, uh, probably with great intentions in response to the Columbine shooting. 
thing. And so this is right an active conversation um, and, and uh, concerns about illegal drugs. Um, and so many leaders created what they thought would be helpful, often black and white, predetermined consequences for behavior. Um, and that they, they thought by removing some of the subjective influence influences from the disciplinary decision-making process, it might make processes more fair. However, what we're finding <laughs> is that that's not what's happening at all. And so many children and disproportionately black and brown children are getting uh, kicked out of school for really minor things. So it's discretionary infractions that uh, state policy does not require kids to get suspended or expelled for. So uh, uh, it's often things like being tardy or having too many absences. And, you know, I've been in situations where children are not even being asked, why are you tardy or why are you yes. absent, right? And, and th those kinds of policies are often administered subjectively. You know, yes. I am here to tell you that my very white 16-year-old son missed a ton of school this year. He had significant number of absences. There were unexcused absences. There were tardies. And all it resulted in for my son was an email and a phone conversation. That's it. And that's not necessarily true for all children. I know I have seen studies um, coming out of Milwaukee, I'm, I'm based about an hour out of Milwaukee, that looked at um, you know, disciplinary referrals for children. And it was black and white students that had done the same exact behavior and the discipline was far more harsh for the black students. This episode is sponsored by By Heart. Babies need to eat. And whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, use formula, combine all of the above, you need options. We wanted to let you know about Byheart Baby Formula. Byheart has a patented protein blend that gets the closest to breast milk. It includes two of the most abundant proteins in breast milk. And Byheart actually ran a clinical trial comparing their formula to a leading infant formula and proved that babies on Byheart have softer poops, less spit up, and easier digestion. Byheart is also the only US-made infant formula to use organic grass-fed whole milk. So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider Byheart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code ONBOYS at byheart.com. That's B-Y, H-E-A-R-T dot com slash podcast. And it is 10% off your first order. Byheart.com slash podcast. This is a limited time offer and additional terms and conditions may apply. We all know that vitamins can help fill nutritional gaps in our diet. But a lot of us don't like to take vitamins because we don't like swallowing pills. How do you feel about that, Janet? There's some days that I look at my vitamins and go, yeah, I should take those. I'll do it later. But I'll tell you what's changed. I have gotten easy melt vitamins. I have the D3 and I have the B12s and a multivitamin. And I just pop them in my mouth and they dissolve. And I don't have to think about swallowing 
a vitamin. Yeah, and you don't necessarily need water either to have on hand to get this big vitamin now. Yeah, no, and they taste good. And they're sugar-free. They melt quickly. The reason they melt is because of plants, not chemicals. Ah, plant-based nutrition. For a limited time only, you can receive a free, free three-month supply of Easy Melt Vitamin D3 with your first purchase. To claim your free D3, visit try.easymelts.com slash onboys. That's try, T-R-Y, dot easymelts, E-Z-M-E-L-T-S, dot com forward slash onboys. Right. So black kids are getting kicked out of school for dress code violations texting, pulling out their cell phone to do anything, cutting the lunch line, uh, having tobacco, not even weed, tobacco, especially once they become teenagers, the the behavior that's in the teenage job description, talking back, yeah, uh, is, you know, insubordination, defiance. And then for black girls, there's this really interesting reason they're being kicked out of school. And it's for not being ladylike. Oh my gosh. In 2019. And so some of the norms around uh, femininity, often across race, are different, right? And so black girls are being kicked out for not being ladylike. And so there was this um, huge study performed in the, t- in the state of Texas. And it was published in 2011. So it's uh, performed earlier in, uh, in this uh, century, I guess, huh? Yeah. And, uh, but it's the gold standard study. And then many other studies have replicated it. It was called the Texas School Discipline uh, Study. And, uh, and so researchers followed all the seventh through 12th graders in the entire state of Texas. It's like a million students. And they followed them for at least six years. And uh, they looked at 83 different attributes that might result in a child being suspended or expelled or disciplined in school, ranging from the quality of the school to the parents' income to the number of parents in the home, just 83 different variables, right? Um, And so what they found was that African-American boys were 31% more likely to be suspended for discretionary reasons. So this is the texting, this is cutting the line, this is that kind of thing, right? But they're 23% less likely to get kicked out of school for the things you really have to kick a kid out of school for, for weapons, for alcohol, drugs, those kinds of violations. And so uh, this is occurring at the discretion of educators. And so uh, now black students are about 15% of the public school uh, and let me say one other thing in that Texas study. Another thing that came out is they're just, we're just suspending way too many kids in general. Yes. Right. But that and, is like know, a go to Right. I, I do some writing in the education world as well. So at least within some corners of education, there is this dawning awareness that for one, if these kids are struggling in school for whatever reason, uh, right. keeping them out of the classroom is really not helping things like ding dong it's really not helping we might just be magnifying the problem by pushing kids out of school so i'm hopeful that we're going to see some change it takes a long time yeah it takes too long and we have to talk about all of this and amplify 
so that we can get change more quickly. Yeah. So today, Black students comprise about 15% of public school students. 28% of Black boys get suspended versus 10% of white boys. 18% of Black girls get suspended versus 4% of white girls. And then Black children are 31% of arrests, which are growing, especially now that we're becoming increasingly, for good reason, concerned about in-school shootings and more and more schools, it's not just the uh, inner city schools and, you know, hyper-segregated neighborhoods with concentrated poverty. A lot of schools are putting police officers or security guards or school resource officers in the schools. And guess who they suspend, expel, refer to law enforcement, refer to the principal's office. It's the children of color, particularly Black children and Native American children. Mm-hmm. Latinos a little bit less. LG, our LGBTQ kids are kids with developmental uh, disabilities. And so where this goes is you suspend a child once or twice and you 6X the risk that they'll be held back at least once during their school career. Suspend a child two to three times and you effectively end their educational career. Say that again. I want to make sure everybody hears this because it is so important. Right. So suspend any child once or twice and you increase by six times the risk that they'll be held back, that they'll flunk at least once. Suspending a child is one of the strongest predictors of them later dropping out, especially if you suspend them during middle school or high school. Suspend a child two to three times and you're effectively ending their educational career. And so we have school districts. Milwaukee has been perennially terrible at this. Yep. At the top of the list or near the top of the list forever. I know that things have gotten a little better, but you know, many schools would suspend black children in their schools, particularly black males. They might suspend a third of their black males every year or 40 or 45% of their black males every year. It's only been recently over the last three or four or five years, uh, particularly during the Obama administration, where some of this was just brought to a screeching halt because there was an accountability around it. The Office of Civil Rights in the Justice Department was uh, holding school systems accountable, which now the Department of Education under Betsy DeVos is uh, taking apart. She's dismantling it. These disparities persist at every level of discipline, whether at the low end, we're just talking about referring children to the principal's office or all the way to uh, calling the police at the other end of the Mm -hmm. spectrum. So they persist at every level of disciplinary action. And so often we think, when we think about something about school discipline gaps or school to prison pipeline, that we're only talking about low-income kids. No, this persists across socioeconomic groups, across type of school, across every level of school poverty. This is happening everywhere. And so you can go to a website. It's uh, OCR for Office of Civil Rights, ocrdata.ed.gov. And you can do a search, which I highly recommend for everybody of your own school system and even your own you know, individual schools. Mm-hmm. But it's tricky because Folks don't really want you to have this information and they really don't want you to have it now. And so uh, it's very difficult, even if you type 
type in your child's school's name as straight as you know it to be. They're entered with abbreviations and SDs for school districts, uh, and right? So you got to play around to find it, right? But for every public school in the United States, you can find the disciplinary data and you can see for your own, your own eyes with your own eyes, the disproportionality that's occurring in your community, no matter where you live. If you're in a rural area, the exurbs, the suburbs, in the city, in an inner city, a great performing school or a poorly performing school, uh, you might be shocked that some of the suburban districts um, in affluent neighborhoods have disproportionality as bad or often worse than big city schools, because in the big city schools, this is getting looked at. These are statistics that make me feel so helpless because this problem is so big, so pervasive, so, uh, you know, multi-layered, and it requires people to confront things that many would rather not talk about that I can, I feel helpless. And I don't want to leave everybody feeling helpless. What are some things that we all can be doing to improve the situation, to work towards equity, to help end these disparities? Yeah, thank you for asking. So let me let me go to the best case scenario. Maybe there is a listener that you have who works uh, within the Department of Justice or within the Department of Education. I want that person to know that we need some heroes right now in those in those organizations and in the Department of Education. We need a strong and accurate narrative about racial equality. The current systems are not working. They're kind of not working for anyone, you know, except kind of at the top of the socioeconomic spectrum, but they're particularly not working for African-American children, Native American children, uh, many Latino children, our LGBTQ kids, um, children with disabilities. And so stories that we have about equality, we need to begin to untangle those and look at who's doing how well and begin to have a conversation about equity versus equality. Not everybody needs the same thing. So conversations about equity are really important. It's really important that we do not suspend elementary school kids and preschool. Between zero and five, that's when a child's brain is developing. Why would we kick children out of the classroom? And it is, you know, I'm trying to think of things that kids get suspended for. And, you know, kids hitting other kids, kids biting other kids. Like you said, that's completely developmentally appropriate at those ages. It's not pleasant. It's not pleasant for anybody to deal with. But they're children. By definition, they are learning. And we have to accept and allow our children the opportunity to learn. Many of our teachers need support. So they need support in how to teach across race, gender, socioeconomics, and the intersection of all of them. So we need to demand that in school systems. Teachers are increasingly being asked to teach a diverse body of people socioeconomically but often they're not being equipped for it. And the media narratives and the structure of society does, as you say, prime our brain with certain beliefs that may or may not be accurate and often aren't around children of color. I thought of that before when you talked about norms and how the norms for femininity are often shaped around, you know, beautiful and feminine for white girls. And if black girls do that differently while you're outside of the norm. And that happens throughout education and society, the right. norms were, were built around 
white upper to middle class. And exactly. we need to enlarge that and em- embrace other people's experience and understand there's many ways to be, there's many ways to act. Exactly. And I think um, an example of how important that is, is if you look across society right now, you see a lot of African-American women leading and leading really courageously. And so that norm around femininity that is uh, often punished when uh, our girls are younger actually turns into something very powerful in the world. So yes, uh, we can embrace that. And so making sure that our teachers are trained, that uh, teachers have enough classroom support, um, even all the way down into, uh, into preschool. We need to not be so quick to, to, to kick children out of classrooms. I think it's really important for all of us to look, to go to that website, ocrdata.ed.gov, and take a look at what's happening in your community. I'll guarantee you, your school principal, your superintendent does not want you to have that data. So things that we can do in our community is show up to school or organize among parents with the data and work together with educators, with school administrators, with other parents and students as well to create equity. We can aggregate it, change policies, hold leaders accountable. I think there's really positive ways to frame this as well because school administrators are under constant pressure to address and close achievement gaps. So if you can frame it in a way as in we as a community are concerned about and want to help close these achievement gaps, I think often you get a better reception than if you come in and say, uh, hey, why is this happening without offering, uh, you know, this is how it's going to benefit you as a school. Yes. And to that point, there's literally a study and where the title of the study is very close to this. Are racial achievement gaps and racial discipline gaps two sides of the same coin? Okay. So anybody can Google that study and those researchers, and that is a really positive way, perhaps, of framing that. I think it's really important that we uh, really consider eliminating uh, zero-tolerance policies. A lot of schools are are eliminating zero-tolerance policies or taking a, a, a look at them and focusing on restorative practices instead. So instead of trying to dis- deter young people with harsh punishment, include conflict resolution and conversations between people and as part of the process of so restorative practices as and well. That is another uh, very well-researched area and I will include some links in our show notes as well because the work's been done. We know how to do it and we know it works. So if you want, you can find that information and you can share that with people on your school board, teachers, administrators. The more we share this information, I think the better chance we have of changing things. So these are all really wonderful things. So as we make uh, decisions about having school resource officers or what we're doing in response to school shootings as we should rightly be doing, Mm -hmm. right? also have an eye to who is going to be harmed by these choices and what decisions can we make along the way to make sure that doesn't happen. What do we need to be measuring? Who do we need to be training? What conversations do we have need to be having that we're not currently having? Who do we need to be hiring? Those kinds of things are also very important. I think also in the society in general, we have a tendency to over-criminalize or to criminalize the behavior of black and brown people, particularly black people. 
Um, and so there's this whole uh, hashtag right now, hashtag living while black. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's where people are calling the police on black people as they do ordinary things, sit in their car and read a book, walk the dog, open their own store, golf. I mean, the list, you know, sleep in your study area when you're a student at Yale, walk across campus to find the free food that was advertised in the Slack app at Columbia University. Like this is happening everywhere. And so I think we all need to slow down in calling the police or calling authorities on black and brown people because our brains have been so primed to see danger, to see violence, to see criminality when it often does not exist because of this implicit bias, because of the media, because of how society is structured. I think all of us need to slow our role and make sure we're clear about what we're seeing before we call any of those types of authorities in. Because whether or not those authorities are helpful when they come to help you, they are often life endangering or trajectory of life altering when they interact with black and brown children and particularly with African-American males. So those are the suggestions, some of the suggestions that I would like to make. One of the things that I struggle with as a white woman and uh, mom to white boys in a very not diverse community is how to talk to them about all of this. You know, it's one thing to to talk about things, and yet to them sometimes it all seems so abstract. So I, I want my children to be part of the solution, to not be part of the problem, and I don't really know what to do. So I think a lot of people find themselves in that situation. Those of us who are of color or other people with marginalized identities are looking for allies and uh, collaborators and co-conspirators. And so uh, we tend to welcome and encourage uh, that kind of thinking on the part of our allies. And we engage in it as we ally ourselves with other people with identities different from ours. So the internet is a really amazing thing. And so there are lots of things that we can learn about just by using Google. So for instance, I have people who tell me, I don't know what language to use lots of times, right? Those kinds of things are Googleable. There are all sorts of resources for people who want to be anti-racist that you can find on, on Google. You can find support systems, online support systems for other people who want to develop their skills become anti-racist, become uh, better co-conspirators and collaborators. Those are available on Google. And I want to just be clear that racist doesn't necessarily mean that you are deliberately being a terrible person because we grew up in and are in a system that was, is, and has been racist. So it's a challenge to look at and think about your own reactions and your own behaviors, but that's so necessary. And as you said, there are a lot of resources out there to help yeah. people do that. There's implicit bias tests. Yes, I was going to mention that. And Robin is a sociologist. She's written an amazing book. It's called White Fragility. And she does anti-racism work, racism work with white people. It's a really incredible book um, that can be a great resource. There are often conversation groups in communities 
the parents of children of color would really love it if you would be really clear with your children about not using the N-word. It's very painful. So often what happens is there might be one black child in a community or a couple who uh, are under a lot of pressure to be accepted and who might not have a voice or who might not be socially aware or um, the music companies do what they do in terms of the type of music that they publish and reward young artists for right creating. Yep. And so it's not acceptable at all. It doesn't matter what you hear, whatever artist or entertainer or uh, uh, celebrity use, it's just not acceptable. Whatever language you need to have in your household regarding your family values, around your belief system, around the type of children uh, that you want to raise, it's unacceptable. I think it's really important to, I think, practice lots of times language that we'll use in those kinds of situations because disrupting interpersonal racism is uncomfortable. And so I think we need to be willing to be uncomfortable, but sometimes we're, all of us are shocked. And so it can be helpful to practice. Um, There's this really great website called Look Different that MTV has uh, that can be great to use with your young person. It offers a bias cleanse and it kind of takes a look at implicit bias as well. Uh, there's the implicit association test that I think you were probably referring to as well, the implicit bias. Yes. And, so, and so, yes. So going back to the point that you were making, I drifted a little bit. Well, I was going to say that we're not dealing with our parents' racism, but guess what? We are, right? Again, because it really just went underground. And so the story that we like to tell ourselves is that we're becoming less racist as a society. Well, actually, that really hasn't happened that much. And even if you looked at the data during the Obama administration, you would find that kind of the older baby boomers are more racist than everybody else. But our brains uh, have absorbed this information from society. And even though we don't necessarily engage in overt bigotry and bias, our, you know, the KKK, back of the bus, different water fountain kind of racism, that there are many things in our society that create disparate outcomes by race. Those institutions or those systems and structures are created by people who are really good people who would never imagine themselves as being kind of that traditional KKK style racist. They're just not. Most of us are not, right? Mm -hmm. But bias has gotten into our brain. Our brain sorts the database and it jumps to the map. And the map has been uh, uh, formed for us by society. Or we've inherited a map that says certain people are more dangerous or certain people are less capable or, uh, or more violent. And we go straight to that map. And so the research shows that about 80% of white people have unconscious pro-white anti-black bias. It crosses socioeconomic groups. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have. But the really interesting thing about what you're talking about implicit bias is it's in the air, right? And so these images and messages in the media and the way that society is structured don't only impact white people, people of color absorb them as well. So just as uh, about 80% of white people have pro-white anti-black bias, so do almost 50% of black people have pro-white anti-black bias. In general, black people tend to be way less biased. However, it gets into all of our brains. And it shows the strength of these messages. And it's yes. going to take a lot of thoughtfulness and deliberate effort 
to deconstruct yes. that and to make these changes. There's hope though, with this thoughtfulness, with these conversations, we can change these things. Black boys deserve to be children the same way all children do. Black boys, brown boys, LGBTQ, children with, with disabilities and challenges, everybody has the right and deserves to be able to play freely, to learn freely. In many children, all those different identities intersect. So it's the same child with many of those different yes. identities, right? Yes. Yeah. I'd like to offer to your listeners who are, uh, particularly those who are parenting children of color or perhaps no children of color, if you'd like to go to my website, which is hillarybeard.com. And that's Hillary with one L, correct? With one L, yep. But if you type it with two L's, it will still redirect. Oh, smart Um, lady. Right, right. Last name beard as in in grows on your chin. I'm offering a free download to uh, support people who are parenting Black children that offers a series of strategies that uh, we can implement across the developmental life life cycle of a child. Messaging that both protects them from the conscious and unconscious racism, bigotry, and bias that they'll experience from the world. And it's increasingly uh, overt and intentional in many cases and um, in, with the intent of bullying or uh, intimidating children. And um, if anybody would be interested in having a conversation about the online course that I will be teaching again, you can contact me through my website or by emailing me directly, hillary at hillarybeard.com. We will be including all of these links in the show notes. And I do encourage people to go to Hillary's website, download, uh, stay tuned, find out more about her course. I'm sure you're going to be working on other interesting projects in the future as well. So the website is a great place to stay up to date on what she's doing and to learn more about how you can be involved. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I appreciate you sharing your audience with me and, uh, uh, and having this conversation. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Hillary. Thanks for joining us. You can find the show notes for this episode at onboyspodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. If you like what you hear, Please share this podcast with your friends and even your community groups and schools will benefit from knowing about this resource. We are Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison, and we are here to support you in parenting and teaching tomorrow's men. Welcome to Prime Video's culture-rated collection. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we don't jump through hoops just to hear our voice and can fall in love with illuminating documentaries like Giannis' The Marvelous Journey. I'm just a hard worker that's trying to survive. Enjoy the animated series, The Second Best Hospital in the Galaxy. All doctors report immediately. Where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Welcome home, baby. 
Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. I want my music to unify people. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop. This is the cleanest police car I've ever been in in my life. And BMF. You're about to take over the whole nation. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details.